Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Thursday morning, the 8th of November, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The Taoiseach is facing strong criticism over Christmas holidays in hospitals. On Tuesday, Leo Vratker said that between the 22nd of December this year and the 3rd of January next year, there are 12 days, seven of which will be Sundays, Saturdays or bank holidays. What has been happening in the health service for 10 or 15 years is that hospitals effectively closed for seven days out of the 12. We need to change that, he said. We need to make sure for the first time ever that during that period, radiology departments and laboratories will be open and working at full whack, calling on healthcare staff to cancel holidays. Mr. Vradker stood over these comments yesterday. Speaking to reporters in Helsinki, he said, every business marshals resources at peak times. It makes sense, he said, if you're running your business well, to always make sure that you match peak demand with peak resources. Senator Colin Burke is Fine Gael's Shannon's spokesperson and uh, on health and a member of the health committee. He joins us now and uh, you agree with Mr. Vradker. Good morning, Michael. What the, minute, what the Taoiseach said is that, look, there are seven out of the 12 days which are either weekends or public holidays. You don't have a full complement of staff on care. And i give you an example. Um, I was speaking to reps from the Irish Nursing Home Organisation last night and they advised me that up until the 22nd of December, yes, they are um, being contacted about, you know, um, where people are looking for step-down care in nursing homes. But from the 22nd of December on, the phones go, go dead. They don't get further calls for three weeks. So, for instance, you have someone who's admitted on the 23rd of December. They're inside in, in a hospital. Um, you have a situation where doctors feel that this person has improved sufficiently to be discharged to a step-down facility. You don't have the backup staff there to organise that. And that's from the Irish Nursing Homes Organisation. They were quite clear to me that this is what is occurring. And they've said, they to, you also, that they, they've they said to you that elderly people uh, have been left languishing in hospital, people who have been medically discharged. Well, basically what they're saying to me is that they don't get any calls about, uh, very few calls, 
in that three-week time period between this 22nd of December and the 13th, 14th of January, you then have a situation where, you know, you have, on the one hand, you have people being admitted to hospital just before Christmas, Mm. or on the other hand, you have people who have delayed going to their medical practitioners over Christmas, go in, and then there's a Mm. Okay, just, just, just before, think, just before we move off the first point, uh, perhaps uh, you could explain to us a little bit further. Does, does it mean that people who have been medically discharged remain in hospital? Absolutely, in the sense that they, you, have a, you have a case where you don't have uh, sufficient backup support there to help people move into step-down facilities. And that's a challenge in itself any day of the week. Mm. When you have seven of the 12 days where you don't have your full complement of staff, then you do have a problem. And let's, let's get it quite clear. I think everyone accepts that every member of staff in hospitals are extremely committed, dedicated, they work extremely hard, and I think there's no one denying that. The question is how we roster people over that period of time. Mm. Can we do a better job and can we yeah. organise in a better way? I think there is also a, a reality in that hospitals endeavour to have people discharged and move to step-down facilities, nursing homes or otherwise, oh, yeah, but, 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 but before before Christmas. Yeah, that, that is true. But that is true. Is, so, 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 so logic dictates that the phones fall quiet and that there's no yeah. calls no, because, no, there's because still, the, the, these the cases admission, have been dealt with. But the admissions still come in on the 23rd, 24th and 25th of December. It doesn't stop. And the other issue that I have raised as well, you take the maternity hospital, as I said in another radio interview yesterday, babies don't arrive between nine and five, five days a week, and they don't stop arriving over Christmas. Maternity services don't um, step down in any way over the Christmas period. They're working full belts the same as any other Mm. day or week of the year, and they have to provide that level of care. So likewise, we are looking, and I think the Taoiseach is looking for a better coordinated approach as regards not just, you know, medical staff, but also in relation to um, in relation to backup support staff for the medical teams. And look, you know, in fairness, junior doctors, mm. uh, nurses, consultants, everyone have young families. They're anxious to get home for Christmas period. And that has to be accepted as mm. well. But there is a view that we can do it better and handle it better than the way it's been done. So, so, so your, view, your view is uh, that health care staff go off on their holidays, they swan off on their holidays, off to celebrate Christmas or whatever it is uh, that they're doing. Uh, and uh, the result of that is that elderly vulnerable pe- people are left in hospital rather than being discharged to a nursing home. Well, uh, what we're saying is that there is there could be a, a more coordinated approach in dealing with this over that two, three-week time period. And, and that, that people are left languishing on, on trolleys uh, because there are no beds for them. And it's the, well, fault of, he, it's the fault of the staff, is it? No, 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 no. Let's quite, be quite clear on this. We're, the, we, you have... First of all, you've, I suppose, um, there is, to an extent over Christmas period, there is a fall-off in the numbers coming into hospitals. Uh, You have less outpatient clinics. You have all of that, uh, less clinics going on. But then immediately after Christmas, you have a huge surge in the number of people coming in. And it's about coordinating all of that and managing it in a better way. And can I just say, also in relation to Irish nursing homes, and they have uh, outlined to me as well where they have written to the HSE, come back a number of months ago, Mm. about engaging with them, about doing a far more um, realistic approach to assisting in getting people out of of hospitals into nursing homes. Mm. And they have not 
uh, the HSE have not engaged with them, even though we're now into November, they have not engaged with them in on that issue. So what the Taoiseach is saying is it's not just uh, about hospitals, it's about the whole administration and how we deal with this. And in fairness, people do work hard, there's no question about it, but it's about can we do it in a better way. So do you, so do, 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 you, do you want people coming in for planned operations, let's say on the 24th or 25th of December? No, I don't. No. I think. Okay. I think. I uh, do you think want outpatient clinics to be open? Well, you see, there are certain outpatient clinics that have to uh, remain open. For instance, you take dialysis; that mm. has to remain open, uh, and it so does. And, and, and emergency and departments are emergency departments working at full well. steam. Uh, what, 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 in effect, is closed? The Taoiseach said that hospitals are effectively closed. What does he mean? No, no, no. He did not say that. He did not say that. He said they're effectively closed for seven days out of twelve. No, uh, I'm quoting directly from him. He's saying what he's saying is that there is. A, a, a lower level of service. No, 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 what he said. No, 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 no. no this, this is the direct quote. I have the transcript here from the Doll Record. What has been what happening in the health service for 10 or 15 years is that hospitals effectively closed for seven days out of 12. That's exactly what the Taoiseach said, word what for he, word. What he's saying, what he's saying in, in, in real terms is that we have seven out of the 12 days, which are weekends, which are public holidays. We need to recognise that that's the situation in relation to people's entitlements to uh, be off. But we've also and got what would you open? What would you what? open? Well, well, we, during the seven days out of the twelve, over the Christmas period, what would you open? That well, is not open. open. That is not running at you, full you, whack, you, as he puts it. You'd, you'd open whatever service that's required. Well, that's what I'm asking you. Would you open up a, a, a emergency surgery? Would you bring people in for planned well, operations? No, no, but in fairness, emergency surgery... Well, not, not emergency, planned surgery. surgery. People, would you bring people in for planned operations? Emergency surgery is still operating. And yes. Consultants. Emergency departments. Um, like, it's like, it's like uh, doctors in maternity. They're mm. available on Christmas exactly. Day. It doesn't yes. stop. Right? But there are certain areas where, as a result of those seven days being public holidays or weekends, mm. you then end up having a big backlog of work to start off in the first week, okay. Week well, well, what, 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 what services would you provide over those seven days that are not being provided now? What about what about orthopedic surgery? I mean, for example, because quite often we hear that orthopedic surgery ends in October or November because the budget has run out. Uh, would you give more money to orthopedic surgery and have it run over Christmas as well? Let's, but let's look in relation money. We're, we're putting seventeen billion into healthcare in two thousand and nineteen. That's one point seven billion above the budget for 2018. What we, what we need now is making sure that we use that money effectively. We are spending more money per head of population. Uh, we're the second highest spender in healthcare mm. in the OECD in real terms. So what we need to do is get value for money. And what we also need to do is make sure that you know, in delivering services, that there isn't, you don't stop producing service, uh, providing services at one period of time of the year and then have a huge surge in demand. But you haven't told us one service that you would provide during this period that isn't, being, pro- that isn't being provided any, right now. I'm talking about any service. But one, name one. But you're, you're, ta- you're asking me to give a specific area. One, just not, one. You're, working, you're saying, you're saying working, open up hospitals. I'm working, I'm working in, in a, a scenario where you have certain services where there is an, um, the, the number of people attending hospital is reduced down. Likewise, you have a situation where you, and I've given you a, the example already, mm. 
of people, the step-down facilities. I've given you that example where the nursing homes Ireland have confirmed to me that in that three-week mm. period over Christmas... And you've agreed that most of those people have moved in before that three-week period. So yes, but yeah. what mm-hmm. I'm saying to you is that, you know, you, you, if you have people admitted on the 22nd, 23rd of December and they require care and they, you know, they get that care and then seven days later they're ready for discharge. Would you be surprised, would you be surprised Senator, if I, I was right in my impression, which is that most people listening to us this morning would feel that instead of asking healthcare staff to cancel their holidays, that politicians would be asked to take fewer holidays. Not to cancel them, well, but to take a shorter break. Well, can I, can I just say to you, I have, I've been working in Shannon for the last seven years. I take a, approximately a week's holidays every year. I work in my constituency mm. right throughout the year. And I don't so doubt that for a second. Because, I don't doubt that for a second. you're not in Leinster Home. No, I don't doubt that for a second. But and my question take, to you, you was, do you, would you be surprised if I was right uh, in the impression that I have that that's what most people would say to you, that rather than asking healthcare staff not to take the few holidays that they're entitled to, that politicians would be asked to take fewer holidays? What we're, what we're asking is for a better coordinated approach. And can I also say to you, Michael, look, we have... It, since December 2014, I've been to the forefront in trying to get figures from the HSE. Since December 2014, there's an additional 12,000 people now working in HSE. We've gone from 99,000 working in HSE to 111,000. That 12,000 is greater than the entire workforce mm. of the Irish Army. So we have put additional money. If you look at that mm. 12,000... You, you, you also stopped the HSE from recruiting, which forced them to no, hire no, no, agency no, no. staff. There was. There was a staff no, moratorium. That's only there been was a staff moratorium because, remember, there was a downturn in this country. <laughs> I do. I do. And people were saying no, to you, no, why no. are you recruiting agency staff? Because people no, continue no. to get sick. You need somebody to look after them. No, but we had a downturn in this country where 250,000 became unemployed. Yes, overnight. and you spent more on staff because you paid for agency staff. We we have managed this matter in relation to, we've turned around this com, uh, this economy where we've reduced unemployment from 15.5% down to 5 Doesn't change the point, Senator. No, 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 you're, you're asking me to be honest and I'm being honest with mm. you. We have turned around this economy. We have more people back mm. at work. Yes, but we you're, 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 you're... We have a situation you're also where we, saying. Have, we have taken 12,000 additional okay. people on in but Senator, you're also saying that you spent too much money on agency staff, and I'm just saying to you the reason you did that is that you stopped recruiting people full time and started taking on agency staff in their place. We, we, the, the, it was a decision taken by the HSE um, where there was a number of, uh, there was a lot of staff, there was a reduction in staff over a period of time because we wanted to reduce down costs on the basis of trying mm, to. Because there was a government moratorium on recruitment. But we, we had a problem, a financial problem in this country yes. as a result of which we took over in 2011. Yes. We turned the economy around. We turned it around so that we can now put, instead of putting in 12 million, instead of putting in 12 million into, our 12 billion into the healthcare sector, we're now putting in 17 billion into the healthcare sector this year. We want to make sure that we can deliver a service. And remember, remember in relation to healthcare, and, and just give you kind of figures in healthcare, 3.2 million people attend outpatients every year. That's 67,000 a week. Mm. 23,000 a week attend accident emergency. So 16,000 a week attend um, 
attend for daycare procedures. So okay. there's a huge amount of work being done by very dedicated and committed staff. Oh, and thank and we God want to make them. sure yeah. well, we want to make sure that that works 52 weeks a year and that you don't have a sudden build-up of demand immediately in the week after Christmas. You then don't have beds available mm. and you then have a situation where you have a lot more people on trolleys. It's Burke. about coordination of services and it's about delivering service in a timely and an efficient manner and that's what the Taoiseach is talking about and that's what I'm talking about. Thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, here on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Senator Colm Burke is uh, Fine Gael's spokesperson on health in Shannon Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now let's uh, go to Balbriggan. We'll speak with Rory Martin who's on uh, the telephone. Good morning to you Rory. You have your own experience of uh, the health service indeed. Very recent experience of uh, the health service uh, and some issues that you have had, uh, but perhaps uh, you tell us a, a little bit about your little girl to begin with. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, she's uh, just a, a few weeks away from her seventh birthday. Uh, good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Uh, yes, uh, my daughter, Malagros, she was born in December 2011, so she'll be uh, seven next month. <laughs> uh, Malagros uh, has quadriplegic cerebral palsy um, as a result of medical negligence uh, that uh, at birth, um, which was admitted in the High Court back in July 2015. Yeah, indeed, um, I, I think uh, she had a, a very hard start in life, as you say, uh, but it's been suggested that uh, she should have been delivered by caesarean in the last week of November. Uh, yeah, that's that, that's correct. Um, <clears throat> the options uh, around birthing were, uh, were not fully explained to uh, to my wife uh, Nancy, um, as a result, she was not able to make an informed choice um, around uh, around her birthing options, okay. um, um, and that uh, both the hospital and the HSE um, ad- admitted uh, those failings back in. Uh, in July 2015 when we were in the High Court. Okay, and that uh, resulted in an interim settlement for you, your daughter, and uh, indeed your family because uh, no doubt you've uh, a lot to contend with in terms of caring for uh, the uh, little girl. Uh, But uh, this uh, then went to the Fitness to Practice Committee uh, and uh, a hearing against the consultant, Dr Felix Nuwazi. Uh, well, actually, he was the the registrar and, uh, rather than a consultant, Michael. Um, yes, um, unfortunately, it was left to Nancy and I to file the complaint, and there was no complaint filed by either Lord's Hospital Management, by Royal College of Surgeons and Ireland Group Management, or by the HSE. Um, so, effectively, <coughs> um, responsibility for dealing with that was advocated by all of of those management teams and we had to deal with that and um, so the um, fitness that proceeded uh, to fitness to practice hearing with the medical council uh, last month and then just yesterday then they announced their findings um, of the fitness to practice hearing um, just there were a number of allegations and um, <coughs> the medical council found uh, Dr. Noazi guilty of poor professional performance uh, yesterday um, on two counts, was it? Yes, on two counts. Um, what the, can- the council stated was that his failure to document details of discussion with both Mrs. Martin, firstly, and then secondly with the consultant, uh, was a serious failure 
of application of knowledge and skill that could be reasonably expected from a registrar in obstetrics. Uh, and uh, explain that to us. Uh, why was that problematic? Um, well, um, just to go back, uh, mm. we have a younger son, so uh, my wife had, we had a previous birth, and that was by um, uh, a late, uh, he was in breech position, so my wife had a cesarean section, so when she returned to the hospital, she had an option, as all mothers do, um, <clears throat> to go for a repeat section or to go try for a natural delivery. Um, now, it, it's incumbent on, on the doctor to outline um, both birth methods and also the risks involved. Um, unfortunately, again, sorry, the committee said yesterday that in 2011, the maternity service at Lourdes did not have any formal procedures in place for uh, documenting uh, appropriate counselling of, of women in regard to VBAC risk counselling. Um, so that's worrying, that, that's worrying now. Uh, not just for us, but for other other uh, mothers who may have been uh, attempting be back uh, back in 2011 or prior to that date. Um, <clears throat> just uh, and just so as I understand, does that mean that people were not being uh, advised uh, of the risk of not having a C-section? Well, we don't know. There's no documentation, so they may not have been, or they may mm. have been. But unfortunately, there was no system in place at Lords in 2011. Uh, to documenting that, so um, you, it's in many cases uh, it may have worked out well in the end for the women. Um, they may have been cancelled, or they may, or alternatively, they may not have been cancelled, and everything might have turned out fine. But uh, the reality is that the hospital management failed to put in place uh, any formal procedures back then uh, for documenting uh, cancelling of women. Um, <clears throat> now. Uh, just kind of following on from that, um, Malagros was born in, 2000, in December 2011. Uh, there was an internal review uh, conducted shortly after, sort of early 2012, um, <coughs> which reviewed the medical records and which, which has to have noted uh, the absence of documentation of discussion with Mrs. Martin and the consultant, as found yesterday. Uh, yet despite that, uh, that internal view concluded made uh, that there was no care delivery deficit. Now, we have repeatedly asked how the internal review team by the management team at Lourdes uh, Hospital came to that conclusion. To date, we've, we've never got an adequate explanation. Um, it's worrying. Um, so we, I mean, <coughs> we, we have called and we're still calling for a formal investigation into the management response to our daughter's birth. Um, my sister informed me that that might now happen. Um, what's tragic, Michael, is that Malagros was born in 2011. Even a, even a review of the medical records would have identified these failings, mm. uh, which the, the medical council uh, concluded was poor professional performance yesterday. So um, I would ask why um, we were why it took three and a half years. Um, like Malagra, as he said, Malagras requires 24-hour care um, at a time when we should have been focusing all our energies providing care to our little girl. We were left with this lengthy legal battle um, uh, to try and uh, establish negligence that was clearly obvious at the time and which the hospital management team should have known. Um, <clears throat> now, now, there's a wider 
uh, issue. Uh, sorry, just going back to my, mm. my first point in regards to the source of complaints. We had to file this complaint. Um, our view is, was and remains that the HSC should have filed a complaint against the doctor and it should have not have been left to, to us. The Medical Council itself has highlighted this issue. Um, in uh, The president of the Medical Council indeed stated in, in 2016 that uh, the number of complaints about doctors from major employers in other countries would probably be about 25% yet of, of all complaints against doctors. Yet in Ireland, uh, that total uh, is is 1% from the HSE. Do you believe that um, your daughter could have been born uh, without uh, the complications uh, because she has cerebral palsy, as you say? I believe that when uh, she was born, she didn't cry, which was probably the first sign that there was something wrong. Uh, But uh, Dr. Nawazi was found guilty of poor professional performance. That was just one of seven allegations before the fitness to practice inquiry. And related predominantly to documenting uh, some of uh, the concerns relating to cesarean section? Yes, I, I, I mean, there, there were, because some of these issues related to discussions between uh, Nancy and Dr. Nawazi, um, some of the allegations could not be proved without beyond reasonable doubt. Mm. Now, there was an external review conducted uh, in uh, late 2012, early 2013, um, where uh, those interviews were recorded um, but an, and the, the council requested copies of those recordings from the HSC um, but the HSC um, was unable to provide those recordings um, uh, they failed to retain the recordings or of those so I mean that certainly didn't help with our complaint um, I, I don't I'm still at a loss as to what happened and why the HSC failed to retain records from the external review and the doctor at that point claimed um, that he couldn't remember what happened yet went for the fitness to practice hearing his memory returned but unfortunately um, the the recordings of the um, external review were not provided for whatever reason by the health service executive Um, so I mean that's a concern but um, there's a there's a ongoing issue here now in regards to the way that clinical negligence claims are being managed um, I, I spoke previously back in 2015 about this um, deny and delay approach we've seen with the with the Scali report uh, it, Gabriel Scali stated that there's no his exact words were there's no compelling reason to disclose uh, the HSE has a voluntary open disclosure policy and there's no, what we need, Michael, is a statutory duty of candour. We need legal obligations and we need serious penalties for medical staff who fail to disclose negligence. In our case, uh, the hospital altered procedures on VBAC risk counselling uh, in early 2012. They didn't inform us of that. Indeed, not only did they not inform us of that, but they told us there was no care delivery deficit. Now, I'm at a loss. Mm as to why they did not inform us that they were altering procedures as a result of failings in our daughter's birth. And given that, um, how how they came to the conclusion that there was no care delivery deficit. Okay. Um, and uh, I, the, the tragedy of this is, um, like Malagra says, mm. considerable uh, physical difficulties, but mentally she's quite aware um, and she's um, <coughs> doing very well using... Um, 
she's non-verbal, but she uses um, uh, eye gaze technology to communicate. Um, so, I mean, that mm-hmm. that should have been our focus. We should have been allowed yeah. to concentrate on, on her and helping her. And we weren't allowed to because the hospital and the HSC and uh, okay. <coughs> the group management. Well, I, I hope with the closure of this chapter, you'll have more time to enjoy her and to look after her, as you say. But I have a feeling at the same time that, that it is just another chapter in this story that we'll be hearing more from you and indeed your family and indeed to the case you're taking on behalf of Milagros. And thank you indeed for joining us this morning, Rory. Thank you. I'd just like to say thank you, Michael. And I would also like to thank um, our solicitor, um, David Malliot, Callum Tansy as well for the help he's he's given. Um, I should say there's a, the, the Department of Health has established uh, an expert group in regards to dealing with clinical negligence cases. Um, I will be meeting with them, and I would hope that reform of the way uh, ne- negligence is dealt with will happen rapidly, and um, because no family should have to go through what we have gone through. Okay, look, Rory, thank you, as I say, for joining us uh, this morning, uh, and uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing more, uh, but uh, thanks, as I say, for joining us at the end of that particular chapter. That's Rory Martin, father of Milagros. Michael Reed on LMFM. Call Michael now, 1850-715-958. For Toomey and others uh, campaigning for medicinal cannabis were in uh, the Dáil yesterday to hear a debate on how uh, the availability of uh, some of these medicines is progressing. Uh, Micheál Martin raised uh, the issue during leaders' questions, uh, saying that there are now 12 patients in Ireland who receive CBD and THC, but it's via an import licence arrangement and uh, that it involves families of patients with cancer or other very difficult conditions having to travel to Holland in the main to secure the medicine uh, in a a pharmacy there uh, and uh, wondering what is happening here. Uh, The government says it's not dragging its feet but let's hear more now from Fianna Fáil TD for Cork North West Andreas Moynihan. Good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, It's a very complicated thing uh, to make this uh, readily available to people in this country? Well, it doesn't really need to be because um, like the, the licensing system has been there and it's been, it's been um, used by a number of people. Uh, and as far back as 2016, uh, the Minister committed, Minister Harris committed that there would be a compassionate access programme put in place for to make it more accessible uh, for people and that it would be an alternative to introducing the licence because up to then uh, and even today uh, people have to to go and get a consultant abroad typically in in the Netherlands to Mm -hmm. verify that uh, the THC is working for them and to make the application and for to do that they're ending up having to spend uh, several months abroad and away from family and so on and this compassionate access programme would be a much more practical are a much more suitable way of, of giving people who need the various medication, who have tried all the other different options and found that they aren't working and distilled down to uh, this option, that it's, it should be there for to give them the option of getting access to the medicinal cannabis much easier than what uh, they're having to do with the massive battle they have to undergo mm. with the licensing system. But where do you get the cannabis to make it available to them? This seems to be one of the questions that's been asked. 
Well, the minister is putting that in as part of part of a. Well, it's almost like he's dragging his feet on it. We know that there are companies, whether they're Tilray or Bedricon and others, that are that are already making it available um, through, for example, the licensing system. Um, so that doesn't need to be uh, a roadblock uh, in the system. Um, the it's almost as if there's there's foot dragging that there isn't the will to finish it out and go ahead and put in place this uh, compassionate access program, and it it's it's there. It's almost ready to go. Um, if the minister wants to reach out and just finish putting this scheme in place, and families need it um, because the idea of having to go. Uh, go away for several months for to be able to get your prescription and then on top of that having to go back again and again and again mm. every time you need to renew your prescription and all of that is away from the family then as well and that's very disruptive for, for young families Is uh, the solution not in making this more widely available? It is, the solution is to make the Compassionate Access Programme available so that people can go to a consultant here at home and get a prescription and be able to access the medication here at home. More people, Um, more conditions. That's right. Uh, Mm. There there are a number of conditions set out on it, uh, such as epilepsy and MS Mm. and others. So it's not not a a wide open uh, open visit. It's for certain conditions. And it's for people who have uh, been trying the various different options, uh, the conventional medicines and that they're not no longer working for them that they're resistant to those and that but there's many people who suffer from chronic pain uh, who would suggest that they would benefit from being uh, allowed to take medicinal cannabis uh, but they're prohibited aren't they that's right mm. and that, should, should that's they one be allowed the issues that's one of the big issues with the compassionate access program mm. that people feel that it can be uh, that, that what is being proposed is almost uh, too restrictive even if it does go ahead. But isn't Fianna Fáil part of the the obstacle to making it uh, available because if you were to make it more widely available instead of 12 patients you'd be talking about thousands of people if not many thousands of people who would be entitled to use it. I think there's a a good strong cross-party effort pushed for to make this happen. We're seeing it from uh, many of the opposition parties Mm. uh, and I know that uh, party leader Michal Martin has been working very closely with the licensees and with families as a way for to to try and push on this. So do you support legalising cannabis generally? No, this is a that's a very different topic. No, it's, it's not, not because what you're doing. No, 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 no this is about THC. Canvas. This no. is about the substance THC, and how do you make THC available to people uh, if cannabis isn't legal? Yeah, the the whole emphasis on the compassionate access is around medicinal cannabis. Mm. It's not about opening out. Um, legalising cannabis for recreational use at all. and man- But it is. Ma- but it is. Uh, and that's exactly why it got bogged down in the committee that looked at this. Uh, and uh, the thing about it is, is that you need to get the cannabis from somewhere. You end up growing it in this country. You license it. Uh, and ultimately, cannabis becomes legal in itself. Yeah, I, I, I think we need to be, be clear on it that the whole emphasis from the families who are pushing for it, yes. political reps and all that are pushing for it, it is around trying to get medicinal cannabis available for the people who are in difficulty with the medications that they have. Completely and understood and accepted. That's right. right. And that, that the recreational use is not 
part of what what's being but it's a consequence if you make it available to all of the people who believe that they would benefit from it medicinally well then the consequence is that it becomes available generally isn't it but it's it's you'd have to have cannabis farms it's it's not, it's not the direction that, that that anyone is looking for to go on. It the but, focus is on getting. But perhaps if you did involved. look at that, perhaps if you, that's the point I'm putting to you. Perhaps if you did look at that direction, that you would be able to make it available to the people as a medicine. But the the the, the products are already available from the likes of Tilray and Bedricon, and. That that's that's being put, brought in as a almost like a, a, a red herring almost I feel by the by the minister on it. He doesn't need to be going uh, researching any further on it. Okay. That he has solutions on the the product that will be available, okay. and that those products then can be used as part of the the compassionate access program. Okay. So that you don't need to be getting distracted with the uh, recreational use. It's not part of of where people are are looking for to go, it's for to deal with medicinal cannabis for people who have uh, various drug resistant conditions. Okay, I've and run over time. I have to go to headlines, so I have to leave it there. But thank you indeed for your time and for joining us this morning. That's uh, Deputy Andreas Moynihan, Fianna Fáil TD for Cork Northwest. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Pages Marie. Pages of stuff really? in front yeah. of me. Okay, yeah. This, this mm. hospital story really mm. is generating a response, Michael. Is it a hospital story or a political holiday story? Well, it's both, mm, isn't I it? I thought that people, that's what I was saying to Senator <laughs> Burke both. earlier on. People would have been calling in, was I right, saying politicians shouldn't take their holidays? Well, we are getting some of that, but okay. I'm surprised that there's some, you know, yeah. there's definitely mixed views coming okay, in. Okay, right. Okay. Uh, first of all, John agrees totally with the Taoiseach's proposal to review holidays for health staff Fair over enough, the Christmas yeah. period. Okay. He hmm. says he would firmly believe that those in hospital or the care system don't get the same level of care at this time of year as they do every other day of the year and he thinks it's not fair. Okay. Billy in Kells hmm. says that he almost thought he was listening to a comedy show with your opening interview with Senator Burke. He says that the Senator managed to dig a hole started by the Taoiseach several feet deeper in what he said but at the same time was reluctant to answer any questions about his own holidays over Christmas and evaded answering when asked if he and his colleagues would be willing to forgo their own leave. Ah, no, he said he only takes one week a year. He said between uh, the work he does Officially. in Shannon and, <laughs> and his constituency work he only ends up with about a week off altogether. That's by choice. Yeah. Uh, another listener, Anna, says she's sick and tired of hearing people suggest that health staff are abandoning their patients during the festive break. Her mother is a retired nurse and during Anna's childhood, she and her colleagues worked on a rota system over the holidays so that no staff member ended up working every year. But as Anna and her siblings grew older, her mom decided to work every Christmas to give colleagues with young children the chance to be at home with their families. Her sister is currently working as a nurse and they operate to a similar system and Anna thinks it's only the fair way because at least they all get a chance to have some time with family over the holidays. Okay. So the point is a lot of them mm. already work over Christmas and there is a roster in oh, place. Oh I think yeah that's what I was saying to Paul Bell yesterday you speak to any nurse and they say well I don't know what he's on about because I have to work on Christmas Day or they might tell you I'm actually off on Christmas Day because I worked last yes, year on Christmas yes. Day but I am working New Year's Eve. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Tommy says uh, the Taoiseach is saying everybody should be at their posts. Is he, Mr. Harris and Mr. Murphy going to be at their desks over this priority time? It Tommy depends on what you know. call their desk. Oliver from Monaster Boy says the government mm. left too late to be telling the nurses that they can't take any holidays. Plans would be already made, Michael. Is the government going to take their holidays over Christmas? Deirdre and Kel says God love the staff. They need their break. It's not right cancelling their holidays. They should have a roster and uh, have other staff on. Okay. Ron, you're from Drogheda. Leo scored an own goal in relation to his comments on healthcare workers. Many of them already work over Christmas. You'd think he, of all people, would know this, Michael, being a doctor. Mm, doctor, Minister for Health and Taoiseach. He certainly has a, a good understanding of uh, the health service. Uh, let's talk uh, about a different strand to good healthcare. And the front page of the Daily Mail today, actually, the headline is Ban Junk Food Ads Aimed at Our Kids. Uh, this follows a survey for the Irish Heart Foundation in which 71% of those who responded support a blanket ban on advertising of things like sugary drinks, snack foods, chocolate bars and crisps to children under the age of 16. Chris Macy is Head of Advocacy with the Irish Heart Foundation. Good morning to you, Chris, and thanks morning, for joining us. 89% of the people who have been speaking to you believe that obesity is a very big or fairly big concern for children in this country. That's right. Um, I mean, the causal link between junk food marketing to children and child obesity uh, has been conclusive. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We proved it's it's been there for 15 years. Um, that's why unhealthy food and drinks were restricted on broadcast media on TV and radio five years ago. Uh, but there's still major loopholes in regulations. I mean, uh, children, for example, between ages of three and five are still seeing more than a thousand ads on TV uh, every year. And uh, weak voluntary regulation has completely failed to prevent an explosion in digital marketing that's much more personalised, effective and therefore potentially even more damaging to children. And it is a, a relatively new thing in this country, is it? Uh, I mean, you said 15 years, uh, but uh, was it a, a problem in the last century? 
Um, well, I suppose what what uh, what's happened is that uh, there's been yeah it's it's a it's a relatively recent phenomenon. If you go back to uh, 1990, mm. uh, uh, famous Italia 90, two uh, percent of Irish children were obese then. Uh, now ten percent are. Eight uh, percent of Irish men were obese. Now twenty six percent are, and I think it was thirteen percent of Irish women were. Now twenty three percent are. What's changed? So I suppose uh, as far as we're concerned, uh, you know, what the evidence points to is there's, there's, there's really four key drivers. Mm. Number one is, the, is this relentless marketing of unhealthy uh, products uh, throughout society. Uh, but I suppose we're most concerned about uh, children who can uh, resist the power of advertising least. Uh, the relative cheapness of unhealthy foods uh, research shows that calories from uh, healthy foods, um, you know, such as fruit, vegetable, and, and lean meats, um, and fish, that type mm. of thing, are up to ten times more expensive than, uh, you know, uh, foods that are high in fat, sugar, and salts. Where the biggest food companies in the world are constantly mm. trying to make them cheaper and tastier. Uh, the ever increasing ubiquity of, of unhealthy food and drinks, um, junk foods, more accessible than ever. You know, temptation, as we all know, it's everywhere. It's in the staff canteen. You know, it's walk out the door of, of your house and yeah. there's, you know, the shops open all, all, all day and all night. And the other one then is sedentary lifestyles. And uh, I suppose, you know, we know um, that, you know, there's a, it, it been a huge reduction in the number of children, mm. uh, you know, going out playing, getting that sort of, uh, you know, unscheduled exercise, if you like, and going on to, to smartphones and, 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 and other devices that, you know, keeping them indoors and keeping them away from exercise. It's a funny thing as well. Uh, I'm not sure uh, if your experience is uh, the same, but uh, I mean, I think I could tell another story in that sometimes you'll give children sweets and they're not interested because they've other sweets perhaps or whatever the reason is but or maybe it's because they're so commonplace how how, how do factors like household wealth uh, and uh, indeed uh, the parenting skills of people today come into all of this yeah obviously parental responsibility you know that that's absolutely vital um, but you know the evidence doesn't suggest that it's one of the, the you know the parents if, if if parental responsibility was one of the key drivers it would mean that parental responsibility since you know Italian 90 mm. as I was saying uh, has has completely collapsed when you know the evidence shows that as a society we smoke less we drink mm. less you know things like uh, drink driving are not socially acceptable anymore um you know but when we were kids we wouldn't turn our nose up to a sweet because we never got them. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, that's and, the point I was trying to make earlier on. Uh, yeah, sure. we, we, had a, we had a very yeah. interesting mm-hmm. talk yesterday from a man um, who's now uh, campaigning with us, a, a man called Dan Parker, who used to be a senior uh, advertising executive. And what he was saying that the industry, you know, the advertising industry has achieved in this, you know, since the early 70s um, uh, and, and, and possibly even a, a little bit later is that it's, it's it, it, there was no such thing as snacking back when mm. you know back when I was a kid. You had your three meals. You'd have the odd treat. Uh, now a treat is actually uh, you know the same thing as a snack. Mm. When a child asks for a treat, they're actually just asking for a snack. And what he what he said was that from from nothing in the early seventies. The, you know, the, the snacking uh, industry, if you like, is now worth worldwide 374 billion euros. And the whole point of, of advertising has been, you know, to, to, to sort of uh, normalise eating unhealthy foods outside of mealtimes. And your point to conclude, Chris, is ban the ads and you might change lifestyles. 
Um, if we if we back, there's no reason. There's absolutely no reason why uh, we need to. Uh, anyone needs to advertise to, uh, directly at children. It generates pester power. By well, if you want to sell it, <laughs> maybe there yeah, is. Well, exactly. Yeah. But yeah. you know mm. what we have is what we have is a is a health crisis where Safe Food Ireland are saying that 85,000 uh, children who are living on the island currently uh, are going to die prematurely because of overweight and obesity issues. Uh, you know, we're seeing, we have doctors telling us that there's children as young as eight coming into them with high blood pressure. And we know there's also, you know, people in, 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 in young people with the early signs of heart disease that, that used to only be seen in middle age. Uh, the the, the middle age rate of stroke is going up and the only explanation anyone can come up with it is it's the first iteration of the obesity crisis hitting and, uh, you know, we want to start dealing with this very quickly. Okay, thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Chris Macy is Head of Advocacy with the Irish Heart Foundation. Now, let's go back to some more of your calls, just very quickly, if we can, please, Marie. Okay, Charlie from Navin doesn't often find himself in agreement with the government, but he sees the merits in Leo's comments. We should scrap blanket Christmas holidays and stagger them. Paddy from Kells, listening to your interview with the Senator, amazed at Michael's attitudes towards him. Everyone knows people get sick on Saturdays and Sundays and public holidays. The hospital should be in full swing all day, every day, he says. But they are the senator for the people. was on top of mm. his job there. Michael yeah. acted like no, a bulldog. No, 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 if no, it was no, a no, Sinn Féin no, no. person, you'd be licking no, up to that, them, says Paddy that, from yeah, yeah. No, That's the point. Uh, for people who get sick on a Saturday or a Sunday or Christmas Day, the hospitals are open. And I think the senator said as much himself that, that if you're going to give birth, uh, the maternity unit is open. If you have yes. an emergency, you go to the emergency department. If you need emergency surgery, you're operated on. Uh, it's the other. And that's what I was saying to him. Name one service that isn't available. Uh, and he said, well, I'm not going to get specific or something like that. Another <laughs> listener, Trey's emailed in, I don't understand, Michael, why you're trying to deflect the problem in hospitals at Christmas time to politicians' excessive holidays. It's about time that this nonsense of HSE practically closing down over the Christmas period was addressed. Bottlenecks and major delays are compounded year after year by the total mismanagement of HSE services at a crucial time of year. No uh, same business of service should get away with this madness. Okay, well I won't argue with that. And there's lots more where yep. they came from, okay. Michael, if I get All more right. time to come okay. in. Okay, well we will find more time, I'm sure. Thanks uh, for that, Marie, and everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, you can ring Marie or Maggie today on 1850 715 958. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. The Oireachtas Health Committee is uh, to meet again today. It's uh, the third day that the committee will discuss uh, the regulation of uh, termination of pregnancy bill, abortion legislation and we're joined by a member of that committee, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health, Louise O'Reilly. These are much protracted discussions, aren't they Louise? Uh, Ten hours I think uh, you sat for yesterday. Yeah, we did and uh, I think it was eight hours the day before and uh, obviously we'll have however many hours it takes um, today. I do think we'll get through it today. There were Mm. 181 amendments tabled um, and 145 of them have actually been uh, discussed, voted on if necessary. Deferred will, it, will, on. Any, will any of them be adopted? Um, not, none of the amendments have been adopted so far. Um, but what we have done is those of us who had concerns have raised those concerns and then there are a series of meetings around. So we have a bit of time between now and mm. report stage, which is the, the next stage that will take place in the door. Um, so, for example, I'm anxious that the, the minister will meet with um, my colleague Megan Farron, MLA from the North, but also with the campaigners 
from the north in terms of ensuring access. So, you know, the minister has said that women from the north will have access. Mm. We just need to work out the modalities of that. It doesn't necessarily need to be in the legislation, but it does need to, to form part of the explanatory documentation. I, I know it's necessary part of uh, the legislative process, but is it not futile to go through all of this when it's going to make no difference at all? Oh, well, it does make a difference because what we do at committee is in uh, a very focused way. We have the opportunity to scrutinise the legislation on a line by line basis and give consideration. And then we have time as well. You see, this is the thing. We have time between now and report stage in the Dáil so that if there are queries and concerns, you can raise them directly with the minister and the minister can then indicate he'll come back to you in the intervening time. And, you know, if it's a thing that the concerns that I've raised can be satisfied by a face-to-face meeting with the Minister. That's fine. I'm not going to push amendments unnecessarily. However, if the Minister fails to give the comfort that I need Mm. and fails to give the assurance that the the people I'm talking to uh, will need, well, then at that stage, we do reserve the right to to table amendments. But committee stage gives you an opportunity in a a calm way. It also gives you time, Michael, that, that you might not get in the in the doll, you actually have time to to have a conversation about it more than i mean it's it's, it's a very mm. non adversarial uh, sort of process it's a very boring process, but it's a very necessary process to uh, the development of legislation mm, but I mean futile in the sense that you go over one hundred and eighty amendments and don't accept any of them but what you do is you have the opportunity mm. no, then yeah. to 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 come together mm. and and you know the concerns that are raised, I mean, I'm, I'm raising concerns with regard to access, with regards to very plain things like including the word abortion in the legislation. The word abortion isn't in the legislation. Right. The word access is only mentioned in the legislation once. Now, I've raised this with the minister. He has said he's going to, uh, that he accepts some, not all of the concerns, and that's fine. And he will revert to me in the intervening time. But it means that we may have time to come to an agreement, which you know, uh, is it, it, better than having uh, an adversarial process where you're constantly calling votes. But actually, you can make a lot of progress. So we did a chance to tease out the issues. So the minister would look at one of the amendments yesterday and I'd say, look, this amendment is intended to. And then the, the response is, well, actually, we might be able to do it a different way. That's OK. The officials will look at us. I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good and a necessary part of the legislative process. Okay, and uh, gives us an insight into what to expect come January when abortion will be accessible, whether that's uh, written into the legislation or or not, but that is the upshot of it. Uh, And uh, there is a a question mark over the legislation itself without the amendments and what it means uh, to have uh, this three-day waiting rule. Yeah, the three-day waiting rule, now I have to say we discussed this at length, I have a difficulty with it. Um, and as, as I said yesterday, you know, put yourself in the position of a woman in direct provision, having to wait three days, having to make an appointment to see a doctor, then come back three days later and uh, and see the doctor again. I think that constitutes an unnecessary barrier. Sinn Féin will be pushing uh, to have that minimised. And we have to remember, the three-day wait wasn't part of the uh, the Health Committee, uh, or sorry, the Eighth Amendment Committee report 
that wasn't recommended by either the Citizens Assembly or the Health Committee. But we also have to... No, but it was part of the draft legislation. That's, uh, right, that's uh, exactly pe- what I, the point I was okay, sorry. Make. We have to be cognizant yeah. that it was part of the published legislation. So people do want to see uh, some form of a waiting period. So just on that, what Sinn Féin are proposing is that uh, effectively, and I hate using words, but the, the clock mm. starts ticking yeah. from the, the moment uh, the, the, the person who's pregnant makes the phone call uh, to make the appointment. Mm. So that two visits to the doctor isn't necessary. There's also practical problems with regard to certification. So the legislation currently says that the first doctor you see must be the doctor that, uh, you know, in, in the case of recovery for the, the risk to the, the woman's health, must be the doctor that uh, is the, the doctor that performs the procedure. But that's not possible. Mm-hmm. So practically speaking, that's not going to work. So the minister has said that he will... Uh, consider what was said and come back to us with revised proposals. But as I said, if I'm not satisfied with his revised proposals, if they don't live up to the standards that I believe they should, and also if they don't reflect what uh, the, the, the landslide victory in terms of the together to, in terms of the referendum, if they don't reflect that, I will be tabling amendments, I will be pushing those amendments and I will be looking for support so you're, uh, you're, from but, colleagues. But your idea is that you'd ring the doctor on a, a Tuesday, let's say, and then you'd have to see the GP once because you'd get a, an appointment on a Friday and that would be it. Exactly. Uh, because uh, the committee has also been hearing that uh, because there's confusion over this, you might have to see a GP three times. Yes, and that was something that uh, that Dr. Harty had said. Now, that's in relation to follow-up care. So uh, it would always be, as with any uh, procedure or any course of habits, even if you take a course of antibiotics, your doctor would say, come back to me a week after you've finished. So in the event that the woman uh, feels it's necessary to have a follow-up consultation, it could involve three consultations with a doctor. Now, uh, what we're saying is this, legislation and this service has to work for all women. So what I had said to the Minister was, consider the woman who lives in a very remote part uh, of, of this island. Also consider the woman who may be in a domestic violence situation where, you know, leaving the house uh, and getting to see the doctor is not as easy as it might be. It's not simply a case that, you know, not everybody works in town, not everybody mm. has a, a GP right beside them, and not every GP can see you um, at the drop of a hat. Indeed, I mean, we've discussed this previously, Michael, but you will know that up around Balbriggan and surrounding areas, many of the GP lists are closed because mm. they simply can't take on uh, any new patients. So it's, it's making sure that the service is accessible uh, while also ensuring that, uh, you know, that it is properly regulated. And, and that is the challenge yeah. for us. Uh, and then there's the issue of conscientious objection. And uh, we've been hearing from the 600 GPs uh, who have uh, an objection and are concerned that they'll be uh, forced to refer people on. Uh, and in some circumstances, at least, don't they have problems, I believe, uh, on both sides of uh, the uh, argument as such. Uh, we were talking to Patrick Tobin on the programme yesterday as well about uh, where abortion clinics might be set up if uh, if that's necessary and if uh, some of the smaller hospitals like Navin or Dundalk might end up providing services uh, for terminating pregnancies. Uh, and he was saying that in, in some of the hospitals, the staff are, are concerned that this will be the case. Yeah, um, and and indeed, it's uh, it's it's good to hear that uh, that that all TDs are engaging with, with doctors and GPs. Um, the the fact is, there are many, and I'm in contact with them myself. What you might call conscientious providers, men and women who want to ensure that this service is is delivered. We can't ignore the fact. Uh, 
that almost 70% of the population voted, of, the, of those who voted, voted um, to make this, uh, to bring this service in, to lift the Eighth Amendment and to ensure that women could have access to all the health care that we need. We need to keep that front and centre. Uh, as it stands, the Medical Council have guidelines. They're very comprehensive and they deal with uh, conscientious objection. They provide for a doctor having to make a referral, um, and that's regardless of what the procedure is. See, the the, the thing that uh, we keep coming back to, and we keep coming back to uh, uh, in terms of the debates, and some of the TDs treat this as if mm. it's uh, as 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 if it's something uh, quite fantastic as if it's something quite unusual it's healthcare you know the, the mm. masters of our maternity hospitals have told us that it is part of the full range of healthcare that they would like to be able to provide uh, for women so as it stands the medical council and of course all of the GPs will be aware of this you know the medical council have guidelines uh, that provide for conscientious objection but there is also an obligation uh, to refer so we will be making sure that the obligation to refer remains in uh, remains in the legislation or remains in the guidelines. Um, I don't see any need to change that. Uh, does, that become, does it become more complicated, though, uh, when you talk about procedures in hospitals, uh, whether that's Letterkenny or Navin? Um, I don't believe it does, because the guidelines as they exist at the moment... Um, are in place. There's there's no proposals that will change those guidelines. So the guidelines on conscientious objection. Mm. Um, but a, a so secretary working in Navin, for example, wouldn't be able to refer somebody on to Letterkenny. I don't understand how that would work. Well, I just mean, I, I mean, there's people in the hospital like who, uh, who who have a conscientious objection to participating in any way with uh, a service uh, that terminates pregnancies. Uh, it's not possible for them to refer people on. Well, you see, this is the thing. The guidelines say that they do have an obligation to refer. Conscientious objection uh, deals with the uh, involvement in the procedure, but the, the referral to another doctor is already part of uh, the is already part of the medical council guidelines. So we're not proposing to change that. You know, in a situation mm. where a service is not provided um, or where there is nobody to provide that service, well, then but, the doctor has an obligation. Mm. But whether it's medical staff or backup staff in the hospital, if the hospital is carrying out that procedure, they may believe that they're involved in providing that service. And indeed, that's a that's a matter for uh, for local discussion. Of course, it is. Mm. Um, but there is absolutely not. And this was said yesterday. It's a very very important point because it was put forward by one of the uh, the TDs, and quite um, quite erroneously actually. And, and, and to be honest with you, Michael, it, it's shocking to a certain extent. Uh, the uh, the level at which the the misinformation uh, can sort of. Uh, penetrate, but there was a suggestion that somehow institutions could conscientiously object. Now that is absolutely not allowed. That's not, that's and that has never been allowed. So uh, the notion that suddenly a hospital will shut its doors uh, to a pregnant rape victim and, and tell her to go right. elsewhere—that's that's not uh, possible, and it won't be possible. And I, by the way, don't think that people want to, to live in a state where that sort of thing happens. I mean, during the course of the referendum debate. We talked at length about the women who will need this service. We talked at length about the fact that 5,000 plus women every year go to England. We made a decision that we want to be able to care for those women at home. And all I'm doing, what Sinn Féin is doing, is trying to make sure that we do care for them at home, but that we do it in a way that is accessible, that is compassionate, and that recognises the absolute and unassailable fact that uh, Irish women have abortions and they have them every day of the week. We just need to ensure 
that, uh, that they are carried out here in this state for the most part and that they are looked after by the uh, by the doctors and other health professionals in this state. Okay, well it's never a black and white conversation, never a straightforward conversation uh, and uh, quite often it's not an easy conversation which is probably why it's been such a long conversation at the Health Committee and I think you'll have a, another long session this afternoon. Thank but thank, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Pleasure to talk thank to you. Mike. That's uh, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health, Louise O'Reilly. Michael Reed on LMFM. As uh, the dust settles on uh, the outcome of uh, the American midterm elections, President Donald Trump is front page news because of the showdown at a press conference with CNN reporter Jim Acosta. I've been speaking with Larry Donnelly. Larry is a, a law lecturer with NUI Galway and a political columnist with uh, the journal.ie. And I be a- began by asking him about the president's decision to sack his attorney general. Jeff Sessions. Yeah, I mean, you know, in, in in contrast to what President Trump said immediately after the election results came in, that that is that it was a, a success. Yesterday, he seems to have gotten somewhat unhinged, and one can only wonder uh, if this is in relation to the Democrats retaking the House of Representatives. Uh, that seems to me to have been part of the pretext, at least, for the dismissal of Jeff Sessions, which has been rumored uh, from some time. Uh, but now, when we see what the the person who he's appointed, uh, at least on the interim basis to succeed Sessions is somebody who's quite dubious about the Mueller investigation. One wonders what is going on within the White House um, that has made him act now. Again, this has been the other for a time, but why act now? Uh, and furthermore, uh, the president's, president's exasperation or anger was pretty clear uh, in his horrific treatment uh, of Jim Acosta of CNN, I mean, calling him a terrible person, an enemy of the people, uh, just absolutely disgraceful uh, behavior that, again, um, even Trump's supporters, all but those who are on the, the most odd and hard right. Uh, I think most people will say, what are you doing, Mr. President? Thank you, Mr. President. I, I wanted to challenge you on, on one of the statements that you made in the tail end of the campaign uh, in, in the midterms. That here, this, here we go. That, well, if Let's you don't go. mind, Let's Mr. Go. President, Come on. that this caravan was an invasion. As you know, I, Mr. President, I consider it to be an invasion. As you know, Mr. President, the caravan was not an invasion. It's a, it's a, a group of migrants moving up from Central America towards the border with the U.S. Thank you for telling and me that. Why, why, did you, why did you characterize it as such? Uh, because I consider it an invasion. You and I have a difference of opinion. But do you think that you demonized immigrants not in this all. election no, to try I to want keep... Them, I want them to come into the country, but they have to come in legally. You know, they have to come in, Jim, through a process. I want it to be a process. And I want people to come in, and we need right. the people. Your you campaign... Wait, your campaign. Wait, wait. You know why we need the people, don't you? Yeah. Because we have hundreds of companies moving in. We need the people. Right. Your campaign had an ad showing migrants climbing over walls and well, so on. Well, that's true. It, it, but they it, weren't actors. They're not going to be doing they that. They weren't actors. Well, no, it's true. Do you think they were actors? They weren't actors. They didn't come from Hollywood. Right. These, were, these were people. This was an actual, you know, it happened a few days ago. And, uh, they're hundreds of miles away, though. They're hundreds and hundreds of miles away. That, that's I not an invasion. Should, honestly, uh, I think you should let me run the country. You run CNN. All right. And if you did it well, your ratings well, let would me be ask, much better. If I, if I okay, may ask enough. one other question, Mr. President, if I may, if I may uh, ask Peter, one other ahead. question, are you worried? That's enough. That's Mr. enough. Mr. President, I, well, that's I was going to ask one of the other folks. That's had, enough. Pardon me, ma'am. I'm, I'm, Mr. Excuse President, me. That's enough. Mr. President, I had one other question, if I may ask, on the Russia investigation. Are you concerned that... That you may have I'm not concerned about anything with the Russian investigation because it's a hoax. Are you, That's enough. Put down the mic. Mr. President, are you worried about indictments coming down in this investigation? Mr. President, 
I'll tell you what, CNN should be ashamed of itself having you working for them. You are a rude, terrible person. You shouldn't be working for CNN. Go ahead. I, I think that's unfair. You're a very rude person. The way you treat Sarah Huckabee is horrible. And the way you treat other people are horrible. Best. Mr. President, you repeatedly, over the course okay, of... Okay, just sit down, please. Well, when you, when you report fake news, no. When you report fake news, which CNN does a lot, you are the enemy of the people. Indeed, uh, that's uh, the story that's making uh, many of uh, the front pages uh, this morning and no doubt will do for some time because uh, there's a a dispute over what actually happened uh, and it appears straightforward uh, that Mr Trump didn't like what he was being asked uh, about uh, migration and so on. CNN are suggesting that the microphone was being taken off Acosta, but the White House uh, suggesting that he put his hand on an intern. Yeah, I mean, I look, I've seen the video. I I mean, I don't think, uh, I think what the White House is saying is actually kind of laughable. I don't think that there was any kind of assault or anything like that. Uh, What I saw and what I think most people saw uh, was the president behaving in quite a belligerent fashion uh, towards somebody who was asking entirely legitimate questions uh, and doing his job. I mean, if we try to suppress uh, a free press in that way, uh, I think that we're on a horrible road. And I think the president, who in some instances I've defended against some of this stuff, uh, I think he lived up to all of the very worst charges uh, of his harshest critics yesterday. I think it was a disgraceful performance. Okay, well, uh, the president may or may not face uh, impeachment uh, proceedings uh, as a result of uh, the outcome of uh, these uh, elections. What, what are your thoughts on all of that? Are the Democrats willing to move on him? This is the, the very careful balance, and I'm actually writing about this as as, as we speak. Um, the, the Nancy Pelosi, who will be the Speaker of the House of Representatives, she has a very, very delicate balance to undertake here. And the reality is, unless something explosive comes out of the Mueller investigation, and who knows, it might, I don't expect it will, but it might, unless something more comes from the Mueller investigation. If she goes for impeachment now, which again, uh, a lot of people on her party's hard left are going to be demanding, including a lot of newly elected congressmen and women, uh, if she goes for that, she could face the backlash of the American people. Uh, And listeners should remember that when Republicans went to impeach uh, Bill Clinton on what were at best contestable grounds, uh, they faced a real backlash in 1998 uh, from the American people. So she needs to walk a very, very cautious tightrope. Uh, and of course, uh, I think look carefully at what the Mueller investigation brings out uh, and then proceed accordingly. But she's going to have a job of work to do, uh, I suppose, to dampen down some of the enthusiasm for uh, impeachment within our own party. And to what end other than a, a slap on uh, the wrist? Uh, because uh, it's uh, not going to be approved by the Senate, given the numbers. Yeah, no, I mean, unless, and this is the thing, um, people, should, people shouldn't assume that no matter what, Uh, Trump is immune from impeachment. If the Mueller investigation does have that smoking gun, and again, I'm dubious as to whether it does, if it does, however, uh, then I think that you could see uh, Republicans flip. It would have to be something truly uh, extraordinary. Uh, And again, I think if there was something truly extraordinary, we'd know about it by now. Uh, Both sides claiming victory. Uh, What are your thoughts? Was it a a good election for the Democrats? It was a good election for the Democrats. It was not a great election. It was not a blue wave. Uh, If it were a blue wave, then they would have won more Senate seats uh, in places like Missouri and Mm. Florida and Texas. 
On the other hand, I think they have to be very happy with the number of seats that they flipped in Congress. They knocked off some uh, Republican incumbents who've been there for a while. They have a new generation uh, of Democratic progressive candidates, I think, that uh, reflect the diversity of America and I think will appeal uh, next time around and will appeal in future as the country's demographic changes. So they have to be pleased uh, with that. But at the same time, uh, I think that the the Senate elections show that, at least in red states, uh, Donald Trump's appeal uh, still goes on. It is still very, very mm. strong. And one of the things I think is notable is uh, we hear a lot about these never-Trumpers and critics within the Republican Party. Well, it is abundantly clear that they are in a very small minority. The Republican Party, uh, at least in conservative states, at least in its strongholds, is now Donald Trump's Republican yeah, Party. Yeah, but it's probably going to increase its majority in the Senate. And given the man who your president is, what does this say about America? If it was a good election for the Democrats, why was it not a great election for the Democrats? Uh, I think it says that the country remains divided. I think one of the things that emerges from this election uh, really is the, the, the divide between suburban and urban dwellers versus rural dwellers. There's a real difference. There really are uh, two Americas in that sense. You have vast, vast swathes uh, geographically of Americans who are ardent Trump supporters who say he's the kind of guy we want to have represent us. Uh, and you have people in the cities and the areas outlying mm. the cities uh, where they are repulsed by Donald Trump. Politically speaking, in the longer term, I mean, this Senate map was very favorable to the Republicans. Politically speaking, in the longer term, that group of suburban and urban dwellers numerically are going to vastly outpower uh, those who are living in rural areas. So ultimately, the signs that are good there for the Democrats. But one of the things we didn't get, Michael, this time around, which I thought we might get, we didn't get a sense of either the identity or even the type uh, of Democrat who we'll see emerge uh, as a challenger in 2020. Okay, uh, but is it reflective of what is thought to be the melting pot of America because uh, Donald Trump was uh, telling people to vote against the likes of yourself, Democrats uh, who would open up the borders to anyone who wishes to come into the country? Yeah, it's clear that the doubling down message on immigration definitely worked in the short term. I have no doubt that, for instance, in a place like Florida, where where a Republican just about tipped uh, the Senate seat, that there's no doubt that that message resonated uh, with those people and still has a particular resonance uh, in middle America. But the issue becomes then, how do you broaden the tent? And look, Donald Trump is president because of how he did in three states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, and Wisconsin. that was it was a very bad night for republicans in those three states democrats will take hot from that but again they can't take too much hot because running this kind of anti-trump campaign without any coherent message of their own uh, it's only going to take them so far uh, and indeed we still are not any more clear uh, as to what their chances are of retaking the white house uh, speaking of uh, the melting pot uh, it uh, was a progressive uh, election in that the youngest woman elected uh, to congress happened uh, with the first Black House member from Massachusetts, first Muslim congresswoman, first openly gay man elected a governor, first Native American congresswoman and first female senator from Tennessee. 
Yeah, I mean, in in many ways, it was a a groundbreaking election in that sense, in that uh, I think increasingly it reflects a a diverse America. uh, And we're going to see more of that. But at the same time, uh, as other results show, we're going to see some retrenchment uh, from people who do not like and who are uncomfortable with the demographic and other changes to a country uh, that they no longer recognize as their own. Uh, That battle and how it it continues to unfold is going to be fascinating to watch. And again, because of the dynamics of America, American politics, it's not enough for the Democratic Party simply to say, we're going to wait for demographic changes, we're getting these progressives elected, etc. They need to have somebody who can cross over. They need crossover Democrats who can appeal to that progressive base, but at the same time, bring back at least some of the people uh, who feel disaffected, who feel alienated, people who might have voted for Barack Obama but then voted for Donald Trump. They need to get some of them back. If it was a referendum on Trump's presidency, what does it mean? Does it mean he's a a sure shot for a second term? You can't address that question fully without knowing who his opponent is going to be, in my view. Uh, What it says to me is that Donald Trump is absolutely in uh, with a good chance to be reelected. But we cannot uh, address the full picture until we know or have some sense of what the field of Democratic candidates is going to be like, and we can begin to assess their relative merits uh, as candidates and the strengths they bring to the table uh, as they try to unseat Donald Trump. But certainly, uh, he's still in a reasonably good position. Larry Donnelly is a lecturer in law at NUI in Galway and a political columnist with uh, the journal.ie. He was speaking to me this morning before we came on air. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Ireland is one of uh, the most diverse countries in the European Union, according to a report this week from the ESRI. 17% of the people living in this country were born in a different country. Who are they and what are they doing here? Well, that varies depending from person to person and indeed country to country in terms of where they were born. Brian Cloran is the Chief Executive Officer of the Immigrant Council of Ireland and he joins us now and uh, thanks uh, for doing so, Brian. Generally speaking, it's a good place for people to come, to live and indeed to work. Uh, good morning, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. I guess um, we've been working in the area now for nearly 17 years, I think, at this stage. and We've really seen the whole spread of migration coming to Ireland as a new phenomenon and how it's embedded itself. And on the whole, we would be of the position, and I think the analysis would support it, that migration has been massively positive for Ireland. And it's a, su- a success story. You know, when we look around us, just look outside our borders and look at how migration is discussed and the kind of difficulty it has brought both to political spheres and all kinds of places. I think we're in a good place as regards migration in Ireland. But the ESRI report obviously then highlights not only the positives, but some of the challenges that we face, the things we have to address and the things we have to deal with. And that's why it's particularly useful as a kind of a barometer of that. Is it surprising uh, that non-Irish nationals are in employment in greater numbers than Irish nationals? No, not to us, but maybe perhaps to some. Um, uh, we've uh, I started off my work years ago in this organisation, working directly with people through our services. And from day one, you know, I would say to people, um, if you want to know what the motivations of people from a migrant background are, come and spend a day in our services and hear what they're saying. You know, people want to work. They're coming with qualifications. They're coming with all kinds of experience and backgrounds. And the vast majority of people want to get an employment and are doing everything they can mm. to, to do that. You know, and I 
think we're in a situation in Ireland now where we're at, at you know, I think around 5% unemployment at the moment, which is as close as we often get to full employment. So it makes sense that people from a migrant background are actively a part of the workforce, um, both because they want to be, but both because they're needed as well. Right, uh, and that's why 70% of non-Irish nationals are working compared to 66% of Irish nationals. And uh, I think anybody from this country who's gone to live abroad will testify that that's uh, the case. You go away to work and you get work where it's possible and undoubtedly that's feeding into that. But why is it not the same with Africans? 16% of Africans are unemployed. It's it's a it's a consistent thread. Actually, I, I think it's it, I believe it's higher. I think it's around forty five percent of of people from African background are currently out of employment. Um, it's a consistent thread. We would say, really, as long as we've existed, we've seen this as as an issue, and it's been found again and again in in different research pieces, such as as the ESRI launched last week, that. People from an African background face numerous challenges, um, and a lot of those challenges can be around discrimination. Um, there's been studies done in the past where you know uh, fake CVs were made with with names that were of an African-sounding name and names that were Irish-sounding names and sent to employers. And the names with African the CVs with African-sounding names often don't get responses, don't get replied to, and that that shows a kind of a, a low level or a, a under the surface discrimination issue that people from an African background may face. But as the ESRI rightly say in their studies as well, there's there's a lot of structural issues that people from an African background may have faced, such as if they came through the asylum system. As everyone knows, in direct provision, um, when where people are placed, if they make an asylum claim, people are in that system for you know four, five, six, seven, and sometimes more years. That places a huge gap in your CV, a huge kind of a, a, a gap to try and explain, and a huge barrier then for people to try and get back into employment following so many years of inactivity. So there can be a lot of different reasons for it, but but I think it is a consistent thread and, and something that needs to be targeted by the government as something that we need to address. And people can become institutionalised and lose their skills or skills become outdated as uh, the case may be. Undoubtedly with Africans uh, there's uh, an issue of skin colour uh, and outright discrimination if not racism. Uh, but there are other obstacles, are there not, uh, in terms of people coming here because of language or the ability to understand what people are saying sometimes? I think absolutely that's the case. I, I think it's interesting when you when we, we look at the issue around discrimination, as you say, it, the, this report also talked about um, people from a Muslim background as well, and it noted in particular that women from a Muslim background uh, face particular challenges um, in getting into employment as well, and that's something that we'd see from our work down through the years as well. It can be a challenge if a Muslim woman is wearing a hijab. So there are cultural things that can come into it as well as, you know, skin colour. But I think you're, you're right as well to talk about the issues around language and the issues around uh, kind of getting people to the position where they can uh, go into a job interview and present themselves well or go into a place of employment and meet the needs of the employer. A lot of people that come to Ireland have great language ability. A lot of people make it a priority for themselves when they're here to, to get that language ability. But we don't have a widespread system in Ireland of, say, free language classes, for example. People often have to pay for them or if they can get into what limited free classes there are, there's huge demand for them and they're oversubscribed and there's not, there's not a huge amount of support around it. So it's been a little bit too informal. You know, we, we've, we've had an informal approach to things like that and really what we need to do now is invest in that, invest in things like language provision to make sure that people can get integrated and get working and get into kind of society as quickly as possible.
Okay, well, it's uh, an interesting insight into the country that we're living in. Uh, I'm not sure if you were surprised. I doubt it. uh, But I think a lot of us were surprised to learn that 17% of the population were born elsewhere. Brian, thank you for joining us, though, as always. Brian Killoran is uh, Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Immigrant Council of Ireland and brings our programme to its conclusion today. Our time has run out on us once again. There'll be a podcast available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon if you'd like to listen back. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Marie in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie